2: Welcome
3: to the London Review Bookshop. Well, good evening everyone. Um, Welcome to the great London Review Bookshop. My name is Gareth Evans and we're very, very pleased indeed um, to be hosting this evening in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the death of the great Vasily Grossman, but obviously more importantly to, uh, to register, to mark, to commemorate and celebrate his extraordinary life and work, of course. And I say life and work, which instantly takes us to perhaps his best-known book, *Life and Fate*. But that extraordinary work will not be the only focus of our evening. Although, of course, it will take its rightful role um, in proceedings. I'm very, very pleased indeed to introduce a, a perfect lineup, really, for this event—a lineup of committed individuals. We are sitting here behind a desk, and I imagine in the Soviet Union, and, and Robert and Anthony and John and Janet will be able to tell me, tell you much more than I can about this. But I imagine there were many such sittings like this, where the people behind the desk were somewhat less sympathetic, shall we say, to Grossman and to many other writers of his acquaintance. But also, crucially, of course, it was not a panel in any real sense, shall we say, made up of individuals, whatever their opinions and decisions. And of course, at the heart of Grossman's work is an extraordinary celebration and him to the power of the individual caught up in obviously some of the largest and most dehumanizing systems of the 20th century so it's a great pleasure to welcome these remarkable individuals tonight going from my right across uh, the translator of the silly grossman into english with key collaborators the great robert chandler who has brought this extraordinary work into our language for us next to him the equally important historian anthony beaver historian of course of the second world war in all its guises but with key works about the very same events that uh, Grossman himself witnessed. Next to him, the distinguished journalist John Lloyd, who has committed himself also to writing uh, in the same way, the same hymn of passion and empathy with Vasily Grossman. And at at the end of our lineup here, I saw an actor who needs no introduction to any of you, Janet Sussman herself committed um, to the reading of Grossman previously, and we're delighted to have all of them here. Please do welcome them now. Thank you. I'm going to ask each of our participants to present briefly um, uh, from a particularly uh, distinct uh, viewpoint we're going to intersperse those with three readings from Grossman's work by Janet which Robert will introduce but just to place um, the date if, if we can so Vasily Grossman died uh, on the 15th of September 1964 so he died 50 years ago on Sunday and we wanted to mark that event as I said at the beginning but also uh, and more positively shall we say to mark the first conference uh, in russia around platinov's work which robert has literally just flown back from so we have first-hand uh, report of the kind of status of grossman's uh, work his position now um, in moscow and of course across russia as a whole um first-hand report in suitable terms from robert who i'm going to ask now to introduce Vasily grossman's life and work
0: thank you very much gareth gareth made a very slight slip of the tongue there by saying Platonov, at one point when he went to Grossman. They're very interesting, it was a very perfect cue because they, they were friends and they have exactly opposite kind of trajectories through their life. Whereas Platonov began writing very strange and obviously poetic, extraordinary prose, breaking every rule and gradually moving towards a greater simplicity. And he began as a poet, ending up writing quite simply. Grossman is a rather unusual example of someone who began as a better-than-average journalist. Um, His writing in the 30s, most of it is fairly standard Soviet writing, better better than average in the 30s, with just glimpses of a great writer here and there and a few very short stories. And really becoming a better and better writer right throughout his life to his last days. Um, So, war journalism, two long novels, um, both centred around the Battle of Stalingrad, of which Life and Fate is the second one. The short novel, Everything Flows, which is more modernist than Life and Fate, which actually takes in a greater span of Russian history, it goes right back. Um, into at least the 16th century and earlier. And then um, some very, very remarkable and very varied short stories that he wrote, especially in the last three years of his life. Grossman Mm. is also unusual in that um, at present his reputation in most European countries and in Russia is um, very, very different is far better known in most European countries than he is in Russia. In Russia, um, especially because of some kind like, of meditation on Russian history and everything flows, um, he gets tarred with the brush of being Russophobic. And he wrote some extremely penetrating, very, very intelligent pages about the Russian slave soul which are by no means one-sided, but Russian nationalists hate him for that. So he's not a popular figure in Russia. And a few years ago, I met the founder of the human rights organization, Memorial, which is both a kind of devoted to human rights today and to sort of recovering historical memory of Stalinism. And I introduced myself to him as translator of Grossman, he smiled very warmly and said, our, our writer. And um, I was kind of pleased to hear this, but it sort of confirmed my understanding of why why Grossman was not seen as our writer by most Russians, because Memorial is now a very marginalised, small beleaguered organisation. Um, the conference that I've just been to, I've just come back from in Moscow I think three things to say Um, as in this country where Anthony Beaver has done so much for Grossman's reputation, it was the historians by and large who were giving the most interesting talks one historian spoke very strikingly about the sort of the importance of Grossman's wartime notebooks because as historians, when he's brought up to believe in the importance of documents but actually Soviet documents are so unreliable and um, as an example, he gave them a lot of military decorations during the Second War will say things like, you know, to such and such a sniper who killed 30 Germans, or so on. They're often figures named of the numbers of Germans killed. If you total the killed Germans just from these decorations, you've kind of wiped out the whole German army <laughs> like two and a half times. Um, so, Grossman's notebooks having a kind of enormous importance historically. So that's one thing and the second thing is that there does seem to be some hope that um, an improved text of life and fate will eventually emerge that it does seem quite likely that the, the whole business of the text of life and fate is actually very confused but it seems likely that the KGB will have, you know, the one that they recently released to the state archives which is now becoming accessible to scholars that would be <coughs> the one that will incorporate, will have incorporated Grossman's last revisions, so within a few years there probably will be a better text there was a very moving talk by Irina Shcherbakova the Educational Director of Memorial, who are one of the sponsors of the conference um, she had the ability to say a few simple things very strikingly and she drew a contrast between a lot of writers um, who, when they were kind of petitioning the authorities about something, they would be saying things like kind of, you are destroying me as a writer whereas kind of Grossman's emphasis was very different it was, please give my book to the reader And in conversation with Irina afterwards um, we talked about what I think is um, one of Grossman's masterpieces along with the last letter from life and fate, the letter written by a Jewish mother from a ghetto in western Ukraine to her son. Um, I think of this story of Marma as being one of his masterpieces, along with that. Um, it's a very beautifully written story in itself. Um, it is based on a real-life story of a little girl who was adopted from an orphanage by Yezhov and his wife. Yezhov was head of the NKVD at the height of the terror, And the worst year of the terror is known to Russians as the Yezhovshina. So this story um, is a quite extraordinary glimpse of the Yezhov family from the eyes, through the eyes of a kind of six-year-old girl and her very good-hearted but ignorant peasant nanny. Um, The story is remarkable in itself. but what Irina was um, emphasising <coughs> was how extraordinary that Grossman honed in on a story, on a real-life story that was to prove so emblematic of present-day Russia. Because the real-life the real little girl who grew up and, as far as I know, is still alive, a very old Woman by now. She is totally devoted to her adoptive father, Yeshov, and she has been doggedly petitioning for the rehabilitation of Yeshov. So this kind of absolute epitomizes the kind of terrible, terrible split so characteristic of Russian society that I am, you know, both I am the daughter of. The hangman and I am the daughter of someone who has been victimized by the Russian state, both at the same time. Um kind of unimaginable. So um I think that's my cue to hand over to Janet. Okay. So this is just a small extract from this story.
4: She lived in a bright and spacious room. If she had a stomach ache or a sore throat, her nanny, Marfa Dmitrievna, would be joined by a special nurse from the Kremlin hospital and a doctor would visit twice a day. And once, when she caught a serious cold, an old doctor with warm, kind, trembling hands came to listen to her chest with his stethoscope. Two women doctors accompanied him. She saw Mama every day. But Mama never stayed with her for long. When Nadia sat down to her breakfast porridge, Mama would say, Eat, my little one, eat, eat up your porridge, but I must be off to the office now. In the evening, Mama's friends would come round. Father's guests came a little less often. Nanny, Nya Nya, would put on a starched kerchief, and from the dining room would come the sound of voices and the clatter of forks. Father would slowly pronounce the words, Well, then we should drink to that. Now and again, one of father's guests would come to have a little look at Nadja. Sometimes she would lie still in her cot and pretend she was asleep. Knowing that little Nadjusha was only pretending, Mama would laugh and say, shh. The man would bend down over her and she would smell wine. Mama would say, sleep, my little girl, sleep. Then she would kiss Nadja on the forehead and Nadja would once again smell wine. This time more faintly. Marfa Domitrievna was taller than all of father's guests. Father himself looked tiny beside her. Everyone was afraid of her. The guests were afraid of her. Mama was afraid of her. And father... More than anyone was afraid of her. Father was so afraid of her that he tried to spend less time at home. Nadia was not afraid of Nanya. Sometimes Nanya would pick her up in her arms and say in a sing-song voice, My darling, my poor unhappy little darling. Even if Nadia had understood what these words meant, she would still have no idea why Nanya might think she was poor or unfortunate. After all, she had lots of toys. She lived in a sun-filled room. Mama sometimes took her out for a drive. And men in handsome red and blue capes leapt out of sentry booths to fling open the dasher gates as their car approached. Nevertheless, Nanya's quiet, caressing voice troubled the little girl's heart. She wanted to shed sweet, sweet tears. She wanted to hide away like a little mouse in the embrace of Nanya's large arms. She knew who were Mama's best friends, and who were Father's most important guests. She knew that if Father's guests were visiting, there were never any of Mama's friends. There was a red-headed woman. She was called a friend from childhood. Mama used to sit with her beside Nadia's cot and say, Madness. <laughs> Madness. There was a bald man in glasses with a smile that used to make Nadia smile too. And Nadia did not know who he was, whether he was a friend or a guest. He looked like a guest, but it was Mama and her women friends whom he came to see. When he came in, Mama used to answer his smile with a smile of her own and say, barbells come to see us. Once Nadia put the palm of her little hand to his high, bald forehead. His forehead was warm and kind, touching it was like touching mama or nyanya on the cheek. There were father's guests. There was one who kept giving a little laugh. He had a guttural voice and a nose that was always trying to sniff something. There was a man who smelt of wine with a loud voice and broad shoulders. There was a thin little man with dark eyes. He usually came early with a briefcase and he left before they'd sat down to supper. There was a dark skinned man with a pot belly and moist red lips. One evening he took Nadja in his arms and sang her a little song. Once she saw a guest with a pink face and grey hair in military uniform. He drank some wine, then sang. Once she saw a guest who appeared to make Mama feel timid. He had small glasses and a large forehead, and he stuttered. Unlike the others who wore military jackets of one kind or another, he wore an ordinary jacket and a tie. He told Nadia in an affectionate voice that he had a little daughter too. Marfa Domitievna could not remember which was Beria and which was Betal Kalmykov, and she kept forgetting the thin man with the briefcase was Malenkov. Kaganovich, Molotov, and Voroshilov, on the other hand, she recognized from the many pictures she had seen of them. Nadja did not know any of the guests by name, but she knew the words, Mama, Nyanya, Papa. One day, there was a new guest. What made him seem special to Nadja was not the way everyone seemed so agitated while they were waiting for him to arrive, nor was it the way nyanya made the sign of the cross when Father himself went to open the front door to him, nor was it anything to do with his clever pockmarked face and his dark, grey-streaked moustache and his soft, fluid movements, nor was it that this guest walked more silently than any person could walk, except the black cat with green eyes that lived at their Dasha. Everyone Nadia knew had the same look in their eyes. There was the same look in mama's brown eyes and in father's gray-green eyes and in the yellow eyes of the cook and in the eyes of every one of father's guests and in the eyes of the guards who opened the Dasha gates and in the eyes of the old doctor. But these new eyes, these new eyes that looked at Nadia for several seconds, slowly and without curiosity, were entirely calm. There was no madness in them, no anxiety or tension, nothing except slow calm. In the home of Nikolai Yezhov, there was no one with calm eyes except Marfa Dmitrievna. Marfa Dmitrievna saw and understood a great deal. The mistress of the house took to wandering about from room to room in the night. She stood over Nadia as she lay asleep, whispered, clinked files of medicine in the dark, turned on all the chandeliers and went back to Nadia again, still whispering and whispering, either praying or repeating lines of poetry to herself. In the morning, Nikolai Ivanovich Yezhov would come home looking thin and pinched. He would take off his coat, light a cigarette while he was still in the hall and say irritably, no, I don't want anything to eat and I don't want any teeth. Once his wife asked him something, then gave a frightened cry. Once... Nikolai Ivanovich went up to Nadia and smiled. She looked into his eyes and screamed. Is she ill? he asked. Something frightened her, said Marfa Domitrievna. What? Lord knows she's only a child. When Marfa Domitrievna and Nadia came back from their walks, the guard now looked straight at the little girl, straight into her little face, and Marfa Domitievna would try to prevent her from seeing his stare, which was as sharp as the filthy, blood-stained talon of a bird of prey. It is possible that Marfa Domitievna was the only person in the entire world who felt pity for Nikolai Ivanovich. Even his wife now feared him. Marfa Domitievna noticed the fear she showed at the sound of his car. And when the pale, grey-faced Nikolai Ivanovich, together with two or three other pale, grey-faced men, came in and walked through to his study, Marfa Domitievna, however, remembered calm, pockmarked comrade Stalin, master of all and everyone, and felt pity for Nikolai Ivanovich. She thought his eyes looked confused, pathetic, lost, It was as if she did not know that the country lay frozen in horror, that Yezhov's gaze had frozen all the vast Russia. Day and night, the interrogations went on in the Lubyanka, in Lefortovo, in the Butyrka. Day and night, transported prisoners to Komi, to Kolima, to Norilsk, to Magadan, and the Bay of Nogayevo. Every dawn, the bodies of those shot during the night in prison basements were taken away in lorries. Did Marfa Domitchevna realize that the fate of a young advisor (coughs) at the Soviet embassy in London, that the fate of his pretty wife arrested while she was still breastfeeding her little daughter, before she had even completed her singing course at the Conservatoire, did Marfa Domitchevna realize? that these fates had been determined by the signature at the foot of a long column of names of a former Petersburg factory worker by the name of Nikolai Ivanovich Yezhov. He was still signing list after list. Dozens and dozens of these enormous lists of enemies of the people. And the black smoke was still pushing its way up from the crematoria of Moscow.
0: I should have said that Yezhov was himself arrested and executed in 1938.
3: Thank you, Robert, and thank you very much indeed, Janet. As as Robert said, Anthony, and of course, as we heard there, the written word, just as characters find themselves uh, the offspring, if you like, of both victims and the victimizing, so the written word can both save experience, of course, but could also condemn others. The signing of lists, the signing of false confessions, and so on. Anthony, I think you want to draw on your collection of Grossman's writing, A Writer at War, at this point, is that correct?
5: Absolutely, Um, in fact, I think the striking element is it was a miracle that that Grossman survived the Stalinist terror because, as Elia Ehrenberg described with a certain amount of affection, was Grossman's disconcerting honesty. The way that he would say to a woman, I say, you have aged a lot recently. (laughs) Um, And, you know, not uh, in any way trying to disconcert her, but it was just simply his reaction. He couldn't really uh, stop himself from telling the truth. So, as I say, it was a miracle that he survived the terror. But I was much more interested about Grossman at war because of the wonderful paradox, in a way. Grossman was very rare in that he had both moral courage and physical courage. One often finds that some of the most courageous, physically courageous people actually are are terrible moral cards, Um, and it's very rare to find the two. And Grossman, when when war began, um, was completely unfit. Um, he was sort of walking with a stick, he was desperately overweight. When he arrived at the front um, he transformed himself in almost a very rapid space of time of learning about military life, learning the sound of mortars, uh, what to do and all the rest of it and the different weapons. But that wasn't the reason why soldiers trusted him. Um, Soldiers actually have a very good nose for the uh, opportunists uh, for the fools. And they could see, and also they read his articles in Krasnian um, Zvezda, and they saw that he wasn't like the other hacks. And um, Grossman himself hated the hack writing of the it, many Soviet journalists at the time. Um, he talked uh, He talked about uh, uh, the sort who write a, an article claiming that uh, Private Ivan Pupkin with, uh, killed five Germans with a spoon. I mean, this was his his sort of coruscating description of uh, the sort of rubbish that they would write purely for propaganda purposes. He believed in what, was called, what he called the ruthless truth of war. And this is what soldiers respected, and it was extraordinary. Here was somebody who was obviously a Moscow Jewish intellectual who was completely trusted by the ordinary Red Army soldiers which was quite an achievement in itself. And Grossland didn't sit down with a notepad or anything like that. He would sit down he wouldn't even ask questions because they would start to talk. And then he would spend the whole night writing up his notes afterwards. Uh, And um, Ottenberg and others sort of were were always very, very struck by this as a, he, he wouldn't even sleep at all at night. I mean, he was always writing up his notes immediately afterwards. But I think the key moment really uh, Ian Grossman's, if you like, political moral um, life really came in, in 1943 when he accompanied the Red Army back into the Ukraine and started to become fully aware of the Holocaust. Um, what he described, he defined the two versions, the Holocaust by bullets and the Holocaust by gas. In this particular case, what he was discover- discovering at that stage was, uh, was still the Holocaust by bullets. He quickly sensed that what the perpetrators had been trying to do was that they were reducing human beings to faceless categories. And they were trying to strip away all possible individuality. And I, will, I do want to read you one particular passage because I think it's so important in understanding the, the sort of the vital sense of Grossman at this particular time. There's no one left in Kazari to complain and no one to tell, no one to cry. Silence and calm hover over the dead bodies buried under the collapsed fireplaces, now overgrown by weeds. This quiet is much more frightening than tears and curses. Old men and women are dead, as well as craftsmen and professional people. Tailors, shoemakers, tinsmiths, jewelers, house painters, ironmongers, bookbinders, workers, freight handlers, carpenters, stove makers, jokers cabinet makers, water carriers, millers, bakers, and cooks. Also dead are physicians, prosthetists, surgeons, gynecologists, scientists, bacteriologists, biochemists, directors of university clinics, teachers of history, algebra, trigonometry. Dead are professors, lecturers, and doctors of science, engineers, and architects. Dead are agronomists, field workers, accountants, clerks, shop assistants, supply agents, secretaries, night watchmen. Dead are teachers. Dead are babushkas who would knit stockings and make tasty buns, cook bouillon and make strudel with apples and nuts. Dead are women who have been faithful to their husbands, and frivolous women are dead. Two, beautiful girls and learned students and cheerful schoolgirls. Dead are ugly and silly girls. Women with hunches. Dead are singers. Dead are blind and deaf mutes. Dead are violinists and pianists. Dead are two-year-olds and three-year-olds. Dead are 80 year old men and women with cataracts on hazy eyes, with cold and transparent fingers and hair that rustled quietly like white paper. Dead are newly-born babies who had sucked their mother's breast greedily until their last minute. This was different from the death of people in war, with weapons in their hands, the deaths of people who had left behind their houses, families, fields, songs, traditions and stories. This was the murder of a great and ancient professional experience passed from one generation to another in thousands of families of craftsmen and members of the intelligentsia. This was the murder of everyday traditions that grandfathers had passed to their grandchildren. This was the murder of memories, of a mournful song, folk poetry, of life happy and bitter. This was the destruction of hearths and cemeteries. This was the death of the nation which had been living side by side with Ukrainians (coughs) over hundreds of years. The point, as you will realize there, was what Grossman was acting against. The Nazi slogan was, you are nothing, the state is everything. And he was fighting against this, as I said, this this determination to strip them of their individuality. What he was trying to do, even though he didn't know their names, was to give back some form of character, some form of individuality. And the trouble was, of course, for his own future, was that he'd begun to feel that the collectivism of the USSR was almost as dehumanising as that of Nazi Germany. He believed passionately in the individual's right to be different, and that, I think, was what he was trying to write there. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much indeed, Anthony. Just before we we ask Janet to read the next passage, I just wonder if you could... Tease out for us a little bit more this issue of his Jewish identity, because if I'm correct, and please correct me immediately if I'm not, his mother was murdered in the Berdichev massacre in, mm. in Ukraine. Yeah. And of course, he witnessed the Holocaust and was also very, very worried, as uh, every other Jewish person would have been with the so-called doctor's plot against mm. Stalin, Stalin fearing that Jewish doctors were trying to kill him and taking a lot of people towards death as a result of that um, in his fear. How how much should we think of him as a Jewish writer at this point, as well as, of course, a, a writer of universal resonances and, and as a witness to 20th century history? How, how where does the percentage or the balance lie in that identity?
5: Well, I think it, it changed during during the course of the war. Um, you know, Robert Robert will probably correct me on this, but I mean, the before the war, um, Grossman was in some ways one would almost describe him as being. Um, he was very highly critical, certainly, of any of the Orthodox Jews and all the rest of it. Um, he, regarded, he regarded their attitudes as almost racist in themselves. He didn't really see himself as a Jew at that particular stage. I think it was the, the experience of um, the Holocaust and also, of course, with, of anti-Semitism within Russia, uh, of sholokhov and, uh, and, and, and others. And then when starting to work uh, with Ehrenberg and uh, work on the Black Book and all the rest of it, was when uh, Stalin was trying to sort of uh, deny any form of Jewish tragedy uh, with the slogan, uh, do not divide the dead, i.e. everybody had to be seen as uh, Soviet victims. They couldn't be seen as Jewish victims in any way. And that was, I think, when it's not too much of an exaggeration, uh, Grossman then did start to recognise um, his 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 Jewish history or his Jewish his Jewi- Jewish side, if you like. But I don't think one can sort of c- categorise him. Mm-hmm. I would have said, you know, he is a great writer. One can't sort of exactly. categorise him as either a sort of a Jewish writer or a non-Jewish writer. But I think that that was ready when the transformation came. Robert, would you agree?
0: Probably. I mean, it's quite a difficult question. People do have different views on it. Um... Grossman came to fame with a story that he wrote in 1934 um, called In the Town of Berdichev, which um, does portray the very, very Jewish world of Berdichev very, very affectionately. It is a story where he is both imitating and in a way competing and reversing Isaac Babel's stories. so the great Russian-Jewish writer of an earlier generation. The story is about, a, just as most of Bible stories are about a kind of Jewish intellectual commissar being initiated into a world of male violence. He fights with the Cossack armies during um, the Polish-Soviet War around 1920. Grossman's story reverses this. It's a female commissar who totally denies her femininity. She becomes pregnant, um, much to her horror, fails to abort the child, and ends up being sort of billeted on a Yiddish-speaking family in and being initiated into this world of Jewish, of Jewish women. And um, this world is portrayed very, very. Um, affectionately, indeed, the story sort of ends with, um, you know, with the commissar being sort of forced to choose the moment of choice. Will she stay with her child or will she join some um, Red Army troops that are marching through the city? So it's, it's a little difficult to be definite about these things. But certainly the, both the experience both what Grossman learned about the Shoah and the fact of his extreme difficulty in writing about it due to Soviet censorship. This certainly vastly reinforced his sense of Jewish identity.
3: Thank you both very much indeed. Well, shall we now hear... Janet, read the second uh, passage. Rolf, would you like to say anything?
4: Well, just that this is probably, arguably, the most un Jewish subject matter <laughs> anybody could ever come up with.
0: This is the Soviet space program, by the way. <laughs> it's called The, the Dog. The preamble to it.
4: <laughs> what was that little dog's name?
3: Laika. Leica. 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 Yeah.
0: The real dog, yes. The real dog.
4: Her childhood was hungry and homeless. Nevertheless, childhood is the happiest time of life. Her first May, those spring days on the edge of town, was especially good. The smell of earth and young grass filled her soul with happiness. She felt a piercing, almost unbearable sense of elation. Sometimes she was too happy even to feel like eating. All day long, there was a warm green mist in her head and her eyes. She would drop down. down on her front paws in front of a dandelion and let out happy angry childish staccato yelps she was asking the flower to join in and run about with her and the stillness of its stout little green leg surprised her and made her cross and then all of a sudden she would be frenziedly digging a hole clods of earth would fly out from under her little belly and her pink and black paws would get almost burnt by the stony earth Her little face would take on a troubled look. She seemed not to be playing a game. She seemed to be digging a refuge, digging for dear life. She had a plump pink belly and her paws were broad, even though she ate little during that good time of her life. It was as if she was growing plump from happiness, from the joy of being alive. And then those easy childhood days came to an end. The world filled with October and November. With hostility and indifference, with icy rain and sleet, with dirt, with revolting, slimy leftovers, the smell of which was nauseating even to a hungry dog. But even in her homeless life, there were good things a compassionate human face, a night spent close to an underground hot water pipe, a sweet bone. There was room in her dog's life for passion and dog love and the light of motherhood. She was a small, bandy-legged mongrel living out on the streets. But she got the better of all hostile forces because she loved life and was very clever. She knew from which side trouble might creep upon her. She knew that death did not make a lot of noise or raise its hand threateningly, that it did not throw stones or stamp about in boots. No, death drew near with an ingratiating smile, holding out a scrap of bread and with a piece of net sacking hidden behind its back. She knew the murderous power of cars and lorries and had a precise knowledge of their different speeds. She knew how to wait patiently while the traffic went by, how to rush across the road when the cars were stopped by a red light. She knew the forward-sweeping, all-destroying force of electric trains and their childish helplessness. As long as it was a few inches away from the track, even a mouse was safe from them. She knew the roars, whistles and rumbles of jet and propeller planes, as well as the racket of helicopters. She knew the smell of gas pipes. She knew where she might find the warmth given off by hot water pipes running under the ground. She knew the work rhythm of the town's garbage trucks. She knew how to get inside garbage containers of all kinds and could immediately recognize the cellophane wrapping around meat products and the waxed paper around cod, rockfish and ice cream. A black electric cable sticking up out of the earth was more horrifying to her than a viper. Once, she put a damp paw on a cable with a broken insulating jacket. This dog probably knew more about technology than an intelligent, well-informed person from three centuries before her. It was not merely that she was clever. She was also educated. Had she failed to learn about mid-20th century technology, she would have died. After all, dogs that wandered into the city from some village or other often lasted only a few hours. But nor were technological knowledge and experience enough. No less crucial for her struggle was an understanding of the essence of life. She could not have survived without worldly wisdom. This clever, nameless mongrel knew that the foundation stone of her life was vagrancy, perpetual change.
3: (laughs) Thank you very much indeed, Janet. Well, um, John, as um, the last line of that reading suggested, there is perpetual change, and certainly and very fortunately for Grossman's reputation there is change, as Robert has identified in how Uh, widely he is read now particularly in Europe and and increasingly we hope in Russia with uh, the new translation of Life and Fate emerging we hope. Um, But could you give us a sense of of where you think his his influence and his his reputation rests now for us here and perhaps in in the States as well obviously the English-speaking world we're thinking about tonight in a particular way. Uh,
1: Thanks and and thank you for the, the introduction earlier on but I have to I have to confess that it was, it was over the top. Um, when you equated me with, uh, with the journalism of Grossman and the passion that he, that he put into it, I worked for much of my life for the Financial Times where passion is not the first rule of, uh, of our journalism. <laughs> it's not a hugely prized commodity. It's not traded on the commodities market. But it is a great newspaper um, <coughs> because it's straight and because it does a great deal about foreign affairs, which which many of us there wanted to write about. And it was being a foreign correspondent in Moscow, um, beginning in the late 80s, that I first read Grossman, though he was not, I think it's right, Robert Walk, correct me, he wasn't published in Russian until 91, I think in Kiev, um, where he was first published. <coughs> Uh, and when Robert mentioned Memorial, which was, I think, founded in 1988, as, as he said, a way of exhuming the memories, and sometimes literally exhuming the bones of those who, the millions who had died all over Russia in the, in the Gulag, it seemed as though a new era was dawning. It really did seem, for those of us in our, in my generation of of journalists in Moscow at that time, so something completely new was happening. And naively, I guess, uh, we thought that once communism was swept away, then, and the party collapsed, as it did, then something new would happen. I wanted to do very briefly, because time's getting on, Uh, just to mention one or two themes. As between the themes that Grossman put into his journalism and also into his novels, and which are still, I think, there in Russia today. I'm, uh, I go to Russia a fair amount because I'm chairman of the advisory committee of a, a Russian NGO called the Moscow School of Civic Enlightenment, uh, which is a grand title and it's a very, very grand organization, but it dabbles in, in politics, uh, and it gets lots of money from abroad. Indeed, most of it's money from abroad. And that now, uh, under the new law brought in um, last year by the Duma, um, means that it, it is registered, has to be registered, as a foreign agent. And Memorial had, a few months ago, foreign agent with a heart uh, drawn around it, equals USA. Uh, It is now more important that NGOs have a link, it is seen to be more important by the regime and by many in Russia, that NGOs like the Moscow School have a link with the USA or with Britain or with uh, other European countries or whatever it might be who give money than the content of what they do. What we discuss, what's the constant theme of our discussions in that school is how deep is the soil of Russian civil society. How far can we found, can Russians found a confidence that democracy, civil society will will continue to exist and to grow in what is now a very thin time. And memory, civil society, and the power of propaganda were all at the very center of Grossman's works. Memory, those of you who've read Uh, both Life and Fate, and Everything Flows. We'll remember the conversations there, especially in Everything Flows, where where Ivan, um, the central character of that book, remembers Anna Sergeyevna, who had been a militant communist in her youth, had been sent to Ukraine in time for the, the great hunger, and confesses to him almost as though she says he's Jesus Christ, a confession that what she did there as a communist militant was to increase the sufferings of the hundreds of thousands, millions of Ukrainians, mainly peasants, who died for lack of food over the two or three years of, in which the, the famine existed. He, in, in that terrible chapter, really terrible chapter, where she just goes through, uh, month by month almost, year by year, scene by scene, hut by hut, starving children, mothers driven mad. The the power of the prose and the urgent need to remember, to inscribe in memory, in a book which he, I guess, thought might well not be published. I think he didn't think that either... Everything flows, or life and fate would be would be published. But to at least to get it out, to get it on paper, the, the memory was was important. And on civil society, to say it's a constant theme among friends in Russia and among people who come to the school, many people who come to the conferences and to the seminars. How deep is it? How many people see it as valuable? You remember the uh, that other central scene in. Uh, life and Fate, where the old Bolshevik, uh, Mostovskoy, is uh, told that he must report to Oberstum Bahnführer Liss, who I think is the commandant of the camp, anyway, a very high SS man, and he assumes he's going to be tortured. And he goes uh, from his freezing barracks into this warm and comfortable and carpeted room, and is treated. He's offered wine and food and cigarettes, all of which he refuses. He refuses also to speak. And Liss um, embarks on this conversation, uh, rather a monologue, in which he he shows Moskovskoy that Nazism, National Socialism, and Stalinist Communism are brothers under the skin, uh, are the same, uh, essentially the same. They both have created a national socialist state. They both believe that the state should dominate, and they're both dominated by tyrants who uh, have roused the population behind them, who've drawn the population behind them, uh, and who have learned that the state is the greatest machine of subordination uh, yet invented. Moskovskyi. Refuses to believe it, but then when sent back to his hut, the doubts begin to grow. What civil society can exist after that? How far, when we who were in Russia in the late 80s and early 90s, thought that here was um, a new society going to bloom because the, the, the barriers had been removed, I think did not take the lesson which is inscribed in Grossman, and that is that the damage was huge, enormous. There, now, and certainly then, many of the people whom I knew, indeed one of the people there who is dearest to me, now a very elderly lady, had gone through the Stalinist period, had been communists in many cases, had wept when Stalin died, uh, and some had created a, a new life for themselves, others had been permanently damaged. But one of the questions that we ask constantly is how far can the nightmare, which which is a large part of Grossman's work, how far uh, has that deprived the country and the countries around about it, Ukraine and the other countries, from uh, from developing a... Um, a civil society. One last word on. Anthony's already spoken about journalism. He was a journalist, after all, for Krasnaya Svezda, one of the, um, the most honored and popular uh, correspondents of his day, who did push his editor, uh, his long suffering editor, to try to publish more of his writing than, than the censors usually allowed. And he got away with some of it. He was able to describe, for example, um, the deaths and the wounding of Soviet soldiers, which was generally cut out. When he wrote the, again, the terrible essay on Treblinka, he got there and the, the, the camp had been evacuated, had been leveled, but there was a number of Polish peasants around and some survivors who'd been hiding in the woods whom he interviewed. And like any journalist anywhere, he reconstructed, a story about Treblinka from these interviews. And what he comes out with, what he comes out with is, again, something so searing, it's very difficult to read. Uh, Especially when he's describing the brutes who tend the furnaces and the gas chambers. Um, But one of the marks of that journalist and why to liken him to any journalists, or nearly all journalists, I think working in the West now is, is over the top, is that he he was witness to, he bore witness to the, uh, the, the the awfulness of the Second War, but the awfulness was, he saw it, the horror of the Holocaust. The last word on propaganda. Propaganda comes in his, which is the kind of the way the wicked stepmother of his um, of journalism. He, he sees propaganda. Uh, Viktor Strum, the, the uh, scientist at the heart of, uh, the, of life and fate, is Jewish. And at a certain point when he comes back from Kubishev to Moscow, the beginnings of an anti-Jewish rumble, presumably, he presumes, comes from the top, begin to make itself felt, and uh, when he asks for two assistants to, to, to assist him uh, in his laboratory, both of them Jewish with Jewish names, they are turned down, and in a painful interview with the, um, with the head of the personnel, he's um, gently told that, um, that Russianness is now in, and Jewishness is um, a, a suspect. Uh, The power of that propaganda, the power of the propaganda against Jews, of course, grew after the war. And one can see elements of it coming back now. There's in the state, in the very strongly uh, administered state television channels and in most of the newspapers, you begin to see um, an emphasis put upon Jewish names of those who are disapproved. And in two uh, documentaries in the most important state channel, one on Yulia Tymoshenko, the former prime minister of, of Ukraine, and one on uh, Arseniy Yastinyuk, the present prime minister, uh, who is Jewish. Um, apparently, Tymoshenko, this was unknown, I think, to most people, possibly even to her, um, had a, um, was said to have a Jewish father, that this, this was put in the documentaries as the, the coup de grace. This was the, the last thing, there. And, and after all that horribleness about them, they're Jewish. And that now is beginning to come across. One can't say that Putin is an anti-Semite. He could say, with honesty, some of his best friends were Jewish, but, um, but one begins to see it creeping in. And what one really does see, and it is awful, is the propaganda used against the Ukrainians. The, the, uh, an American journalist recently did um, a list of the, the, the um, explanations for the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner, remember, with about 300 dead. The Dutch inquiry has now shown fairly um, conclusively that a missile struck it and, the, and it came down. The this journalist got about six different... Uh, explanations, which had come across again on state television or in newspapers, one of which was that the the CIA, of course, had um, filled the aeroplane with dead bodies, uh, had put a a crew in, the crew took the plane up to cruising level and parachuted out, leaving in it a bomb which was timed to go off over the the borders between Russia and Ukraine (laughs) Uh, and before anybody got to it highly trained operatives had uh, cia operatives um, had put passports in in all their pockets and um, this was known because because the um, steely gaze of of national television had discovered that all the passports were new that's only one of the uh, of the explanations given and apparently believed including <coughs> One very early on, horrible story about a, a three-year-old boy being crucified by uh, Ukrainian soldiers. Oddly enough, in this time of the camera phone, no pictures survive of this, uh, and much else. So that one sees the, the old mechanisms, the kind of mechanisms which were the, at the heart of his journalism and above all his fiction coming back again, being revived, and once again, extremely depressingly, apparently being believed. It is very depressing indeed to see that this, that the anti-Westernism, anti-democracy, possibly too uh, anti-Jewishness, can be so quickly stroked into life, and that we are again, in a position where Russia and Europe, Russia and the rest of the world are counterposed against each other.
3: Thank you, John, for reminding us, of course, of the ongoing threats that we face, and again, why a writer like Grossman is so important in reminding us of those and and anchoring them so profoundly, I think, in in the language of his work. Uh, I think we'd like to just hear one more short piece, if we could. Janet and Robert if you'd like to just briefly introduce that and then we'll go to questions obviously comments responses from yourselves. Robert would you like to say Um, anything about this?
2: This is just
0: the first few paragraphs of um, I think Grossman's very very last story. Grossman is a writer who was just forced by the circumstance of his life into confronting an extraordinary number of the most terrible tragedies of the 20th century and um, they didn't really in any way seek them out Um they were just there um, he is naturally and so he's always probably going to be associated with Stalingrad, with the Shoah and so on and this is what he said about these things is of immense importance but it's um, a little unfortunate that and um, this sort of weight of history can rather obscure the, um, the delicacy and wit and charm of um, a lot of his writing. And so um, the beginning of this story, you're about to hear it, and um, it could easily be by
4: Chekhov. Nikolai Viktorovich had removed his gown and was about to set off back home when Anna Aristarkovna who was famous for growing the best strawberries in town, said to him breathlessly, Nikolai victorovich a colonel's just driven up outside. Well, said Nikolai Viktorovitch, I suppose that's what colonels do. And he began pulling his gun back on. Anna Aristakovna's admiring gaze was, he knew, a tribute to his air of Sleepy calm. Really, however, the colonel's arrival alarmed him every bit as much as it alarmed Anna Aristarkovna. He and his wife were planning to go to the theatre in the evening. This might make him late. Nikolai Viktorovich was someone who felt compelled to appear better in the eyes of women than he was in reality. Women had always liked him and his innate gallantry, as well as a certain Protectiveness he could not help feeling with regard to his halo prevented him from really revealing the many ways in which he differed from his persona. Even though his hair had gone grey, he was still a handsome figure, slim, tall, graceful, always tastefully dressed. His fine, distinguished face wore the expression portrait painters aspire to bestow on the good and the great, on those whose Vocation is to adorn this world. Women fell in love with him and never imagined that he was not in the least as he appeared, that really Nikolai Viktorovitch was a very ordinary man. Someone who did not care about world problems, someone who knew nothing about literature or music, someone who adored comfort, <coughs> elegant clothes, and massive saffron yellow rings set with large precious stones. No, it never entered their heads that he had no especial love for his work as a doctor, and that what he really enjoyed was dining in good restaurants, travelling first class when he went on holiday to Moscow, being seen with dear Yelena Petrovna, who was as tall, graceful, and handsome as he himself, in the most expensive seats of the theatre, and intercepting admiring glances—glances glances that said, "Oh, what a handsome couple!" <laughs>
2: You said, and it was said as a sort of compliment, that when he was a journalist he would listen, 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 and then write down after he had kind of gone through the night. If I met a journalist who just listened and then wrote down 12 hours later, I would think they were deeply suspect. Was he reliable?
5: Well, as far as one could tell, yes. Um, What he was trying to do was not to get down so much facts and figures. Um, but the emotions of the soldiers who've just come out of battle. Um, so to a certain degree it was impressionistic. Um, you know, if, he, if he'd been trying to uh, remember um, you know, coal outpro- production figures or anything like that, yes, I agree, it would have been very suspect indeed. Um, the point was that he didn't want to be like a journalist in front of them. He wanted to be as natural as possible uh, because he wanted to win their trust. And um, he certainly um, did that all the way through Stalingrad and all the rest of it. Uh, I think that one gets a nose when looking at the material, reading what he said, um, when comparing it against the accounts uh, of the time. Um, that I didn't think he was inventing anything. I, I, it, it all rings very much, it all rings very much true, far truer um, than any of his, say, um, contemporaries like Simonov and others. Uh, Seymouroff was better than some. That's certainly true. But I mean, there was still, should we say, quite a lot of uh, glorification and all the rest of it. I, I really do think that he was interested in the brutal truth of war. That doesn't mean that you know everything was literally uh, true. Uh, where I think he really scores, and this one finds later on in the novels, are his little pen portraits, which he did jot down at the time. Whether it was a description of just smoke coming out of chimneys on a freezing day, rising absolutely straight up, like sort of battleships at anchor or whatever you described it. His description of a soldier about to be executed for desertion. I think these are the sort of details which you don't get from any other writer. And he did spend more time at the front, I think, than any other journalist um, in the Soviet Union, that particular, uh, throughout the war. So um, overall, I I, I I would certainly, would, trust what he had to say, even though uh, he didn't have a tape recorder with (laughs) him.
0: I wouldn't myself use the word impressionistic. I think he was, I think he had a fantastic memory and um, that he um, actually was very interested in the exact language used by the, Mm. um, used by soldiers and that he could remember it.
4: Uh, I'm just saying that I want to add, uh, since I I used to be a Soviet journalist uh, for a bit, during the war, or I mean, at any time, you had to present portray, a model soldier, or a model character in your uh, piece of journalism. And he didn't do it. He was uh, describing life as it was. He was very close to real characters, and that he was telling the truth about the conditions, etc. And that's why people liked him so much.
2: Um, Thanks. I mean, this has been a really, for me, a really enlightening discussion, uh, particularly about Grossman as a journalist and his historical context. I just feel like we could hear a bit more about him as a a novelist, as a writer of fiction, actually. Um, And the point that came up earlier that, that made me think that was the discussion of how he felt about his Jewish identity. And at what point in his own life did he move from you know, being ambivalent about his Jewishness to, to maybe coming more to the fore. But it um, just strikes me that that's a sort of key theme running throughout life and faith, in fact, and that the characters in the novel sort of go through that process themselves and sort of slip in and out of thinking of themselves as more Jewish or less Jewish. And I, I wonder if that's perhaps what's so strong about that as a novel is the way in which it sets up these sort of debates that either characters are sort of internally debating big questions like that, or they're, you know, in parts of the novel that's kind of overtly laid out, where you have these big discussions on literature and truth and kindness. Um, and I just wondered if perhaps, maybe this is one for Robert to, to sort of just tell us a bit more about how that actually sort of operates as a, as a work of fiction.
0: Um, I'm not sure how well I'm going to be able to answer that, but um, when I, um, before going to the First international Grossman conference, which was held in Turin about 10 years ago, um, I reread Life and Fate for the first time for 15 years, which is quite a while. And um, I was a little bit anxious before rereading it, sort of wondering would I feel that I'd overestimated this novel? And um, actually, on the contrary, it seemed finer than I'd remembered it, and I felt that there were a lot of things I hadn't taken in first time round. And um, what particularly struck me was um, the delicacy of a great deal of the writing. That it's not all about these kind of huge themes, that there are a lot of a lot of chapters um, which could you could actually extract, and they would work rather well, just as, as short stories... On their own, written with a again with a Chekhovian delicacy. Chekhov was his favourite writer. So um, I think that's yes. I mean, there are sort of two. I mean, he did, on the one hand, while he was in Stalingrad, he did reread War and Peace. Um, but on the other hand, um, Chekhov was throughout his life his his um, most loved writer. So there is a great delicacy in Grossman, as well as this monumentality, which is um, particularly present, obviously, in the long novels.
2: I think you all said in different ways that it um, was quite extraordinary that
4: Grossman was capable of providing a certain kind of journalism, quite unusual, quite different from uh, what everybody else was writing. And also, so first his journalism and then his writing uh, later on, was of a kind that
2: would could have caused reactions could have caused uh, troubles so one thing is one question is what is your reading of how how did he make it how did he survive how the how the how is how is that he managed to do what he
4: did and the second more more sort of technical being myself an historian um, does anybody know if the files on Grossman you know, have emerged somewhere, or documents of Grossman have emerged somewhere in the archives to tell us more about how it was seen from the machine, from the machine of power and politics?
5: Well, as I said, it was a miracle. I thought that he survived the um, purges, um, but out of astonishing courage, he uh, actually intervened and saved his second wife. But during the war... There was no doubt he was under heavy pressure at times because, or at least rather Ortenberg was, his editor was under fairly heavy pressure at times uh, because of what he was writing, because it was certainly not in the uh, true, say, Soviet realist style or anything like that. Um, And it was certainly uh, not uh, giving the totally positive version of events that the Soviet authorities wanted. And there was tremendous battle, particularly at the time of Kursk over Um, his description of casualties and and things like that. Um, Grossman at times felt that he'd been let down and certainly betrayed over uh, the way that he was not allowed to cover the end of the battle at Stalingrad, that uh, um, Simrov was parachuted in to do it in his place. Uh, And I think he was fairly bitter about that. But at the same time, I think it was because he had such a, a strong support and a following uh, amongst the soldiers and certainly, and also the officers uh, in the Red Army in such admiration. That perhaps, it's hard to tell, that perhaps um, helped him. Um, I mean, in fact, even after the war, one or two of the officers actually um, s- stood up for him at a time when he was again uh, again challenged. Um, but he does seem to have had some sort of guardian angel in, uh, at times. I don't know, Rob. Rob what would you think?
0: Yes, uh, picking up on the guardian angel, um, it's obvious enough that Victor stroom the scientist, um, does um, embody a great deal of Grossman. Um, it's a little bit less obvious that there's a, um, a rather charming, fortunate major buryoskin who has sort of quite a jolly figure, and. Um, he is actually also an embodiment of Grossman, who um, Grossman was known by his colleagues as lucky Grossman, and um, one of I mean one of the um, moments in the novel which um, Beozkin it is something that did happen to Grossman, you know was a, a, a grenade sort of rolls up to Berzkin's a German grenade kind of lands at his feet and doesn't explode um, if there were. I mean, that happened literally, but it's also quite a, a true metaphor for Grossman's life. There were quite a lot of times when things could have exploded and didn't.
1: I think how, when you ask how did he do it, I, I, I don't know this, but that you get the impression from the journalism, uh, and especially from Treblinka, that... That here was a man who like some journalists who are, who uh, describe large events, describe the large events um, and and do it more or less accurately and that 's it. <coughs> there are a few journalists of whom he clearly was one, perhaps uniquely one, who get it who get the world historical significance of what they 're doing and 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 write within it as it were and it seems to me that, that having gone through, followed the Red Army right into Germany, gone through the war for the years that he did, that that then was this immense reservoir which, which he then drew upon for especially life and fate, but for everything that he wrote after. That's how he did it, I think, <laughs> that he, he was able to grasp what he was seeing in a way which no other Soviet journalists, very few journalists perhaps anywhere could have or did do. And that that then, ironically, because of the, of the, the terrible nature of what he'd seen and experienced, nevertheless was this massive reservoir uh, which then came into this massive book uh, and uh, gives it very often the, the, the aspect of a
3: documentary. Please do join me in thanking our wonderful
1: guests. Thank you you for joining us for
0: this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on
3: iTunes.